0: Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com.
1: This is Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. State investigators say they have identified the cause of a devastating wildfire near Medical Lake west of Spokane. The Gray Fire burned 10,000 acres last August, forcing thousands from their homes, and the fire burned 240 homes. In a report released last week, the Washington Department of Natural Resources says the initial sparks came from a security light mounted on an inland power and light pole. Those sparks ignited nearby brush, and the fire quickly raged out of control. Emma Epperly is a reporter for the Spokesman Review, who has been covering the Gray Fire, its aftermath, and medical Lake residents search for accountability. Welcome, Emma. Thanks for being back on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you start by walking us through this DNR investigation of the gray fire? How did they find that sparks from a security light were responsible here? Yeah,
2: so DNR, uh, when a big wildfire like this starts, they have investigators on scene as soon as possible. In this case, it was within a few hours of when the fire was reported. And it was reported at a property owned by the Jetson Memorial Youth Ranch. And there were residents of the property who were unaware of the fire until a friend arrived. They'd come out to recreate and saw a blaze had started in some brush. The residents of the property then saw sparks coming from this inland power and light security light that was mounted on a power pole in the center of their circle drive it was a gravel driveway. And so pretty quickly, that was reported to Inland Power and Light and then to other officials uh, who came out to the property, sounds like, same day. Uh, it obviously takes a few months typically to get through an investigation like this. They look at the components of the light as well as interviewing witnesses. So that includes the resident of the property, uh, David U.S., who is that person who came up and started fighting the fire, who was coming to recreate on the ranch, along with the first one caller, all those types of people to get a picture of what happened.
1: So they're looking at physical evidence. They're collecting statements from witnesses. This is a whole case that's being built here to determine the cause. Exactly. They rule out a bunch of different options. So a natural
2: cause, an intentional start, uh, a bunch of different options they have to go through and rule them all out until they reach a final conclusion. And not all investigations result in a definitive conclusion, but this investigation did. Department of Natural Resources definitively found that uh, it was the security light sparks coming from that light, the electrical components of it, that blew across the gravel driveway, died at the brush, um, and then went up into this gully where it hit a tree. Uh, it was really windy that day, and it just spread towards town really quickly. David U.S., who was there, he had his kids in the truck and was with a friend. They'd come out to recreate on the ranch. Uh, they initially started fighting the fire like it was a grass fire. They thought they could contain it, get it out. Mr. U.S. got in a tractor, started drawing a fire line, uh, tried to save the historic buildings in the area, and just one big gust of wind changed uh, their ability to contain it. Mm. Let's
1: talk a little bit more about the security light. Is this just like a typical street light? I mean, what is it there for? What do we know about it?
2: Yeah. So if you picture a power pole, a typical power pole, sometimes, especially in more rural areas, you'll see a light attached to that power pool. It doesn't mention in the report why there was that light, but it's in the center of this farm driveway. So typical farm has a lot of outbuildings, a house, um, and a circle drive. And so it's in this area in the center of the circle drive. And the resident of that property had called Inland Power a couple of times, mentioning that the light had been flickering But no one came out uh, to look at it, is what she told investigators.
1: Emma, you lay out this strange saga related to some evidence uh, about the gray fire. And it has to do with these three pieces of equipment from the light pole. But there's been this difficulty in actually tracking down one of those pieces, an aluminum conductor. What's been going on?
2: Yeah, so uh, the property, the resident of the property where the fire started, By the time she was alerted to the fire, someone else had already called 911. Like I said before, friends were fighting the fire. She gets on the phone to Inland Power and Light. She knows this is an Inland Power security light. So she calls them uh, and they say they're going to send someone out. And they do. And they disconnect the power from that pole. Uh, And they also take some of the components from the light, which Department of Natural Resources investigators discovered. Inland Power's attorney, Scott Safrisi, spoke with him last week said that they were open and helpful to DNR throughout the investigation, uh, and they worked with Mr. Cifrecy, um, who sent those items to a private lab for some analysis. And at some point during that, uh, one of the items was lost. Mr. Cipresi declined to comment on the specifics of that, but did acknowledge that that piece was misplaced. And the Department of Natural Resources had already photographed that evidence.
1: So it's unknown at this point where uh, that conductor is. And what's the potential importance of tracking down a piece of evidence like that? I mean, you have the photos, but, you know, what kinds of further investigations, further litigation is going on that this piece of evidence could be important for?
2: Yeah. So the obviously there's civil litigation being brought by families who were impacted by this fire, who lost their homes, uh, who were displaced. So that's a civil litigation directly with Inland Power. But in a situation like this, where it's a large fire that is going to cost a lot of money to repair the damage, and there is a definitive cause that's found by the investigators, the Washington Attorney General can potentially pursue firefighting costs. And so that's kind of the next step. It's not a situation where there would be criminal charges filed, most likely, but the attorney
1: general uh, can pursue those firefighting costs. Yeah, we have seen criminal charges filed um, in other states and some really deadly wildfires uh, against utility companies um, and some culpability found there, but um, that you don't expect there to be, at least the attorney general's office is. Not saying that they plan to pursue any kind of criminal charges here; it's more like recovering the money in order to work towards rebuilding and and compensating people.
2: Yeah, that's what I was told by the Department of Natural
1: Resources. I'm talking with Emma Epperly with the Spokesman Review. The Gray Fire burned in August of 2023 and destroyed 250 structures. You did a lot of on the ground reporting at the time, Emma. How would you describe the recovery of that area in Medical Lake today? What's changed in the months since then?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting because um, the diversity of the types of properties and structures that burned is really um, shocking in Medical Lake. So there is a portion of a typical suburban neighborhood, houses right next to each other, that burned. And there's a lot of rebuilding in that area. There seems to be a bit slower rebuilding and work. Uh, in some of the more rural properties. All of these residents have to do asbestos testing um, along with you know cleaning up the trees that burned on their property before they can begin rebuilding. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the Spokane Region Long-Term Recovery Group was set up. Um, it's a nonprofit group that liaises with the government and other nonprofits to help in the recovery process. They've got case managers through the Salvation Army that help people develop their own uh, individual recovery plan. And so that process is just getting started. It's a long-term recovery group, uh, meaning it's going to take a long time. Um, and so a lot of these processes are just getting put in place um, and people are, are kind of just starting to get some of that help. And so progress is slow. Um, a lot of people aren't back on their properties yet. Some people are living at RVs, others have started construction. So progress is really staggered
1: in the area. I was really struck by your interview with David Juhasz. Again, the first person or one of them on the scene of the gray fire, he's the one that you know had to pound on the door of the person whose property it started on in order to get her up and out and potentially save her life. And he was helping to fight that fire as firefighters were arriving. And he talks about guilt that he feels that he didn't do enough at the time. And, and he looks at the devastation that the fire caused and he just has... Obviously, a lot of uh, trauma response to the whole situation. You know, what what were your thoughts as you were talking to David about that and kind of the overall implications, such a small spark and the effect, the ripple effect it can have in a community?
2: Yeah, it's really striking. Um, you know, you read something in a report about how the fire started, but being where it started and seeing the person who uh, was first fighting the fire is totally different than just reading about it in a report. I think this is the type of situation that we've seen before um, in Malden, and Pine City in 2020 that just devastated those towns, and they're still recovering, still uh, in litigation with a power company. And so, just seeing you know the personal side of that, um, I think is really important uh, for people to understand the impact. Uh, I really like to mention Carl Group; he's the only person to die in the Gray Fire. He is the founder of the Jensen Memorial Youth Ranch, which owns the property where the fire started. The youth ranch, it was created to be a place for city kids to have the ability to learn about agriculture. So you might not have a, a place to raise a pig or a cow at home. And so you could do that at the youth ranch. And um, he was sped out to the property when he heard about the fire, got there about the same time as the first firefighters. He wasn't able to help fight the fire himself due to some injuries he'd had. He was in his 80s. But um, as he was driving back into town, he crashed his truck and died. Um, And so it was really emotional for Mr. U.S. to know that that happened, you know, Mm. after he'd been out helping to try and save these historic buildings on uh, Mr. Group's property. They were friends, uh,
1: right? They knew knew each other. Yeah.
2: Yeah, they were friends and Um, You know, Mr. U.S.'s kids were there with them. They were going to recreate out on the ranch. So I think that loss um, to the entire Medical Lake community has been really devastating. Um, You know, he gave back a lot to the entire community there. And uh, I think people are so reeling from his passing as well.
1: Emma, we're going to talk in a moment further about utilities and their culpability when it comes to these. Big fires that have been sparked in areas like California and in Hawaii, the Lahaina fire, um, and now in Washington State, as we have this report on the Gray Fire in Medical Lake. Before we go, is there anything else that you're watching for? I mean, I think about what is the Washington Utilities and Transportation Commission doing here, and when it comes to regulating these power companies, um, the Attorney General is going to decide whether to file. There are the civil suits that are going on from people who live in the area trying to recover some um, that they've lost. But what are you going to be watching for, you know, when it comes to the future of power utilities in Washington and their safety measures to ensure that on a hot, dry day, windy day with high fire conditions, you're not going to see their equipment sparking another fire?
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting to point out that this is, not the first time in recent memory that a uh, DNR report has found a power company at fault for causing a fire. Like I mentioned, the Babroad fire, which devastated the communities of Malden and Pine City, a Vista was found. um, It was a Vista power line that uh, in strong winds uh, hit a tree branch and ignited that fire. Uh, That's what the DNR report found. And there is still extensive litigation Related to that fire that's ongoing. Uh, And that fire was in 2020, so four years later. Uh, So I think that case is probably a good one for people in Washington state to look at. I I would guess that it's going to take years for any type of resolution for any of this litigation. And uh, the resolution of that litigation, I think, will really show how utility companies are gonna
1: respond in the future. Or be forced to respond, right? <laughs> be forced to change. Yeah, we'll we'll keep watching your reporting um, you know, as this story unfolds. Emma Epperly with the Spokesman Review, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. On the subject of fires sparked by electricity infrastructure. Here in Washington, House Bill 1032 went into effect in July. It requires utilities in the state to create wildfire mitigation plans. Coupled with millions in federal grant funding, Washington utilities affected by wildfire are looking at what they can do to limit wildfire risk. The state of California is a bit further along in litigation against utility companies, which haven't done enough to prevent fires. And electricity companies there are spending big to overhaul thousands of miles of wires and equipment. Joseph Mitchell, a wildfire safety consultant and owner at M-Bar Technologies and Consulting, has worked with California to focus new regulations. And joins me to discuss what we might be able to learn from California's approach to mitigating utility-caused fires. Hi, Joseph. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. As we were talking with reporter Emma Epperly at the Spokesman Review about, Washington State has seen a few recent fires linked to power utility equipment lately. The Bab Road fire that devastated Malden in 2020, that blaze was traced to a diseased tree that fell into an Avista power line. Meanwhile, Maui County is suing Hawaiian Electric for its alleged contribution to the deadly Lahaina fires. That investigation is still going on. But California, where you're based, is really ahead on this, unfortunately, because of the number of large wildfires in the state. The nation's largest power utility, PG&E, pleaded guilty to 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter and settled for more than $13 billion for its part in the deadly 2018 campfire, which devastated the town of Paradise. Since then, the company says it is spending big on mitigation efforts. What are mitigation efforts when it comes to these big power utilities? I mean, how do companies mitigate their fire risk, especially in rural areas, in areas where, you know, you have hundreds of miles of lines, maybe, you know, in the kind of wilderness. What do companies do to mitigate the risk?
0: Well, there's different levels of mitigation. You start with the basic stuff, the utilities do inspections, they need to keep their maintenance up, repairs, replacing any old equipment. Then the next level, for instance, brushing around telephone poles making sure that there aren't obvious sources of ignition. In areas where the fire risk is higher and you have the potential for catastrophic fires, you can begin to look at hardening of infrastructure. That means rebuilding it with improvements to make it less fire-prone. There is also power shutoff, and that's something that I think other states have begun to use California was a pioneer in that. Power shutoff comes with its own risks and costs. It's not very popular for obvious reasons. it can it can impact people's lives and uh, well-being as well. So it's not something you want to do lightly. As far as the hardening goes, for instance, Southern California Edison has deployed, what's known as covered conductor. These are where you take the overhead conductors and you have them covered with a tough polymer that makes them pretty much non-conductive. You can touch them and they you will not be electrocuted. And this really reduces wildfire ignition risk. Edison claims, according to its data, that it's reduced risk since 2017 by about in its service area. I've looked at their field data and their covered conductor seems to be performing even better than they say it's supposed to. Hmm. So it's very effective. Now, what utilities in California are really pushing for now, though, is undergrounding. Starting in 2021, Patricia Poppy, the CEO of PG&E, proposed a 10,000-mile undergrounding plan. So there's no doubt that that's the most effective way to mitigate wildfire risk, but it's extremely expensive. So pg e claims they can get the cost down to $2.3 million per mile. Historically, costs run 3 to $6 million per mile. And so this really impacts rates. So at some point, you need to start doing the balancing between cost and benefit, between the risk from the wildfires and the risk you're imposing on your uh, lowest income customers who have trouble paying their electric bills.
1: Yeah. And it's quite a mind-bending calculus for these regulators and companies to go through, right? I mean, you're talking about devastation of towns like Paradise and and like other major wildfires, the Dixie Fire, another one that PG&E has been found liable for, um, versus the day-to-day cost to consumers, you know, the cost of those shutoffs. It's Truly boggling, the idea of how to balance all that. That is the job of the Public Utilities Commission, of course, in California. They approved a plan in November for PG&E to bury more than 2,000 miles of power lines, but it will mean an average of $32 per month more on utility bills for customers. There was conversation about using covers, but it looks like PG&E's push for the undergrounding won out in this case. I mean, is there a world where these safety measures don't mean higher bills for consumers ultimately the customers are going to pay right
0: yeah yes they they that's that's correct the customers pay at least that's in california that's how the regulations are set up there's currently some discussion i haven't been following along very closely with of implementing a new law in california that would set sort of basic utility rates based on income so going more to a income based rate for at least part of the bill but that's also very unpopular uh, and i think they you t- the legislature may be backing down on it based on some news stories i've read so it's complicated and you do need to do this balancing act and you know i think california personally you know having studied this issue i think these other less expensive technologies can provide a lot of protection especially in combination with each other that starts to approach that of undergrounding and it's a lesser cost it's still not negligible and it still costs something mm-hmm. but it's uh, a matter of figuring out who's going to be taking on the risk and cost
1: Um, There's one important distinction here when we talk about PG&E versus, for example, Inland Power and Light in eastern Washington. Inland Power and Light is a nonprofit electric cooperative. So Mm. it's actually owned by members. The net margins, according to the website, are allocated back to members. So, I mean, we're talking about really big differences of scale when you discuss PG&E, the largest electric utility in the country, and Inland Power and Light. There are ongoing civil lawsuits in the Attorney General of Washington will be looking at charges and and what kinds of ways to hold Inland Power and Light accountable, according to Emma Epperly with the Spokesman Review we talked to earlier. But I just want to make that distinction, too. And uh, we're talking about the size and scope and potential amounts of money that could be recovered from a Inland Power and Light versus PG&E. Where do you think states, their utility commissions or regulatory bodies and utilities go from here Joseph i mean we are only going to be seeing more wildfires as we see you know average temperatures going up we see these conditions emerging with tinder dry grasses super high winds i mean what do you expect for the future of protecting homeowners protecting businesses and you know people from the effects of these wildfires i mean how will utilities have to evolve how will governments have to look at changing the rules in order to continue to you know protect people from these devastating fires
0: well i think from the coming at wildfire from a utility standpoint i think quite a lot of progress has been made in understanding the problem and coming up with solutions that work pretty well and that means planning don't want to be in denial until something really bad happens and say it never happened here. Because what we've seen is, you know, from where we started in 2007, when we had a power line firestorm in Southern California with 20 fires burning simultaneously, large fires, nine of them ignited by power lines to then 2017, we see it in central California in 2018 and then moving up into Oregon and Washington, we're seeing some of these fires too. So it's coming and you need to plan for it. And you need to take the defensive measures before it's too late. Now, wildfire is going to get worse whether the utilities are starting them or not. So there's also the matter of hardening the structures in the wildland urban interface and making them more fire resilient people who live if if we're going to be living in the wildland urban interface we need to make sure our structures are fire safe our landscapes are fire safe so that requires a tremendous amount of planning and it's going to take investments on the part of people who live and work in the area and it's going to take investment on rate and the part of utilities and whatever structures you have for recovering those extra costs
1: Joseph Mitchell is a wildfire safety consultant and owner at MBAR Technologies and Consulting. I really appreciate your perspective, Joseph. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to SoundSide. By the way, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more.